Okay, so next week we'll be back in the book of Romans. Uh, and just so you know, as uh, we prepare for that, we'll, we have those um, scripture journals available still. If anyone hasn't gotten one, if you want one, uh, it has these blank pages next to text so you can take notes as you go through Romans. It's a really cool way to study scripture. Um, and you can pick those up. Uh, but this week, um, Pastor Tim and I talked, and we decided that there was one more thing that we wanted to learn from John the Baptist And before we move on and dive back into Romans. We've seen this prophet, uh, John the Baptist, we've seen his wisdom and his integrity, his boldness and his humility, and he's a truly great man, truly. And today, we'll see this truly great man struggle. John, he's, he's lived his life set apart. He's received the word of God. He's baptized people and preached and prepared the way of one greater than himself. As a, as a part of God's revelation to him, it was that he would know the Messiah as one whom he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon. And in the most remarkable way, he saw that happen when he baptized Jesus. And from then on, he joyfully and successfully pointed people towards Jesus and his ministry. But he, was, he still continued to do what he always had done, uh, calling for repentance. And as a part of that, he was very public and outspoken about calling even rulers and people in authority to repentance. It seems like John thought that public figures, especially those in authority, ought to be held publicly accountable at least for public sin. And so here's the situation. If you, if, you, if you want to catch this, you're probably going to need to follow along closely because we're talking about ancient politics. So you remember the Christmas story, how there's that evil king named Herod, and he finds out about this new king to be born, and he's so corrupted by power that he wants to snuff out this new king, and uh, he attempts to do that by killing all of the boys, baby boys, in Bethlehem. An incredibly evil man, right? Well, that man, he dies. And his reign over the region, it's divided between his sons, his three sons. And one of them is named Antipas. And he takes the name Herod to be like his dad. And so it's Herod Antipas that we're talking about. He was the ruler over Galilee, where Jesus grew up and spent a lot of time, you know, Sea of Galilee. Uh, but he was also the ruler over a region east of Jerusalem, east of the Dead Sea. And the, the line where his territory ended was, where do you think? The Jordan River, right where John was baptizing. And so John, he hears about the doings of this ruler, Herod Antipas, and in particular, one very scandalous thing that has drawn his attention. He has an adulterous affair with his brother's wife. And he's going to marry his own sister-in-law. And John the Baptist calls him out for this. And he rebukes this ruler for his sin. And he also seems to rebuke him for other sinful things he's done. Well, Herod Antipas, he takes after his dad. Uh, and he's also corrupt by his power. So in, instead of listening to the prophet of God and repenting, he decides to go a different route and chooses to arrest him. And throw him in jail instead. And so we see this legacy of sin, this legacy of evil, 
rolling on, this kingdom of this world in sharp contrast to the kingdom of God. And when they clash, the reign of evil is incredibly hostile. And John the Baptist becomes a part of another part of the collateral damage. And, and John, he's the least naive person in the world. He knows exactly how bad people are. And he knows that Herod will probably kill him. Because John's not going to repent of what he said out of faithfulness to God. And Herod's not going to repent of what he's done because of pride. And so here's John the Baptist caught up in this tangled web of sin and worldliness. The kingdoms of this world driven by pride and lust and greed and more pride. And these kingdoms, they don't like the kingdom of God because they can't box it into their system. And John, the greatest man alive, is wasting away in prison in which he'll ultimately be killed. Put yourself in his shoes. The messenger of hope, locked up in prison. That's the setting here as we read this text together. So let's read it. It's in Matthew 11. If you turn to Matthew 11, we're going to be starting in verse 2. Just reading verses 2 through 6. It says, Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. <clears throat> So when John is in prison and he sends the, these people to ask Jesus, are you the one, what do you think is going on? Because he knows he's the one, right? Doesn't he? I mean, that's what we talked about last week. He was so certain that Jesus is the one that he was filled with joy in giving up his ministry to him. He saw heaven opened and the voice of God and the spirit descend just as God told him it would. So why is he sending this delegation asking Jesus this now? Because John the Baptist, in all his greatness, is struggling and even doubting. Even someone who ought to be more certain than anyone. Even someone of such great integrity and character can experience doubt. A part of why this message is so important for us is because we, we have a complicated relationship with doubt. We feel like we have to stifle it or, or keep it secret. And often churches can encourage people to do that. You, you know, if you lift any doubts or say anything off script, you know, the look at you like, don't, don't say that, you know. I've actually had quite a few conversations with people in my life who've grown resentful 
because of that. Because instead of being treated with respectful instruction, uh, they are when they're struggling to believe something, then they're, sh- they're shamed instead or shushed. But this is not the way of Jesus, as we'll see. Even John the Baptist doubted. And so I want us to examine his doubts, his question, and Jesus' response. So first, John's doubt. Why is he doubting? And I think we can deduce three things from this text. His circumstances, his expectations, and himself. These three things. So first, the clearest difference, right, between now when he's doubting and earlier when he was not, is what? He's in prison. He's suffering. His circumstances have changed for the worse. And and this is often when doubts arise. This is when the devil tries to get a foothold. When he tries to pour, he tries to pour salt in our wounds. Many of us know how hard it can be to believe at times in this broken world. And we need to cultivate patience for people facing this struggle. I've learned that doubt is far more emotional than it is intellectual. Under the weight of darkness, we forget his light and his love. When depression or frustration or fear overwhelm us, we ask questions like, have I believed for nothing? Are are you really with me? Do you really love me? And these questions, they don't arrive nearly as often when things are A-OK. They usually come in the pit where John is. But there's often an intellectual type of thing mixed in as well because such, when, when we're in such circumstances, we start to compare and contrast with our expectations. When things go unexpectedly for us in a positive way, we don't, it doesn't usually lead to doubt. But when things fail to meet our expectations in a negative way, the devil leaps on that. And that is what happened to John the Baptist. Matthew tells us that his question arose when? Did you notice at the beginning of that text? is when he heard of what Jesus was doing. So Jesus' ministry didn't look exactly like what John the Baptist imagined it would look like. And so when that happens, especially when it's mixed with suffering, we start to question things. But the truth is, Jesus is a real person, a real God. And he has a real personality and his own distinct purposes. And all that means that there will come times when he will act differently than we would expect. Sometimes differently than we would like. Because we don't have the big picture that he does. We see through a keyhole. But his door is unlocked and swung wide open. It, it, it's, and it, but it's beyond even just mere perspective. Even if we widened our keyhole, we would still lack his wisdom and his holiness, and we would act differently. But he's the one in charge. And this leads to the conclusion that if you cling to your expectations when someone else is in charge, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And disappointment often leads to doubt. I think when we take this together, we see that there are reasons to doubt our doubts. That's something I learned from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. He says to doubt your doubts, because what doubts really are is just alternative sets of beliefs, and their foundations are far less stable than the foundations of our faith. And the devil tries to keep, it tries really hard to keep us from thinking about that. But in, this, in, the, in the situation of John the Baptist, I don't think that his doubts are just, or even primarily about Jesus, 
I think John is doubting himself as well. I'll explain how I get that from the text in a minute, but first I want you to know what I mean. I mean, imagine him in that prison. Imagine you're him in that prison. No longer with a thriving ministry, instead facing an imminent execution. What might you be thinking? I'd probably be asking, did I get this wrong? There's been false prophets before. How am I so sure I'm not one of them? Did I bring this on myself? Is this judgment? I'm sure he would try to remember those those signs, those prophecies that, that gave him such confidence before, but in the darkness of those circumstances and the dashing of his expectations, as we've already noted, that would make it hard for him to fix himself on such things. He's, and he's stuck with himself, questioning himself. His whole life had been for, at one point, it had been for this one purpose. Had he blown it? Was his life lived in vain? These... And this is kind of more personal for me because this self-doubt is far stronger in my life than God-doubt. And the case can be made for it much more easily, can't it? And what's dangerous about it is not that we should never question ourselves, because we actually should sometimes, but the danger is that it tempts us to put too much emphasis on ourselves. We're not made to bear that kind of weight. And so it leads to despair. We're not meant to be navel-gazers. We're meant to be God-gazers. And the reason I think John was experiencing this kind, this kind of doubt in, in, in a situation is because of what he does with his doubts. If you notice, he takes them to Jesus. Which shows that his doubt was not primarily about Jesus because if it was, then asking Jesus wouldn't help anything. Even in his doubt, though, he had a deep, unshakable trust in Jesus. He knew that Jesus would set him straight. He would tell him the truth. He just needed to hear it from him one more time. So again, even in his doubt, I think John the Baptist sets a wonderful example for us because this is how we are to handle doubt. Take it to Jesus. This is how the psalmists handled their doubts and distress. If you read the psalms, there are some of them that seem like really hopeless. Like Psalm 39, Psalm 88. And some people interpret them that way. But I think those people are missing something pretty big. Maybe it's too big, so it's easy to miss. Something glaring. Who are these psalms addressed to? How are you even reading it? They're prayers to God that have been recorded as songs for the worship of God's people. They show that those facing distress and doubt believed that God heard them and cared about them. They believed that they had a listening God that they could take such things to. That, that God's people would be worshiping in these kinds of situations. And that God is still in charge. There is this implicit hope in lament. In taking our pain and our grief and our distress and our doubt to our good and compassionate God. That's what the psalmist did. Regularly, That's what John the Baptist did. And, and I've mentioned the book Every Moment Holy before. It's this little book of a uh, collection of, of prayers for different situations and occasions. And it has this prayer, uh, kind of a long prayer for nights and days of doubt. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but at one point in the prayer, he talks about this very thing. He says, even as the psalmists again and again, 
carried their cries, their questions, their laments to you. So would I be driven by my doubts to despair of my own strength and knowledge and righteousness and control, and instead to seek your face, knowing that when I plead for proof, what I most need is your presence. John the Baptist, he needed reassurance. We all do regularly. And where do we go? Where do we look? Where should we look? It's to Jesus. He is the shining star that reorients us in the night. And he can handle, he can handle it. He could take our doubts, our struggles, our questions, our cries. And he will point us in the right direction. He will set us straight. He will reorient us. The, the Sheldon von Aachen, he wrote a poem about this. He was a close friend of C.S. Lewis. And he came to faith as an adult, and he was actually helped to faith through the writing and the friendship of Lewis. And in his biographical account of his journey to faith, he wrote a beautiful sonnet about this that I think captures it perfectly. Let me read you most of it. He wrote, Did Jesus live? And did he really say the burning words that banish mortal fear? And are they true? Just this is central. Here the church must stand or fall. It's Christ we weigh. All else is off the point. The question is, did God send us the Son incarnate crying, Love, love is the way. Between the probable and the proved, there yawns a gap. Afraid to jump, we stand absurd and see behind us sink the ground. And worse, our very standpoint crumbling. Desperate dawns our only hope to leap into the word that opens up the shuttered universe. That poem is so rich. I won't unpack it all, but I love when he says, it's Christ we weigh. He's the point on which everything stands. Our faith is not in mere propositions or philosophies or morals. It's in a person. A person who spoke the burning words that banish mortal fear. The Son incarnate, crying love. All else is off the point. Leap into the word that opens up the shuttered universe. Leap into his embrace. It's to him that we, should, that we take our struggles and even our doubts. That's what John was doing he, he, when he sent his friends to Jesus asking this question. And John's question is a good one. Are you the one? And this had a very specific context and meaning. But when you understand what's behind it, you realize that we all ask this question. And we, we should learn from John to ask it in the right way and to the right person. John was asking, of course, are you the one who is to come as the Messiah? And within that hope of Messiah is deliverance and freedom and fulfillment and hope. And sure, we, we don't look for the Jewish Messiah the same way John the Baptist was looking for him, but we look for Messiah-like hope all the time and often in the wrong places. Even that phrase, the one, right? What does that bring to mind in our modern times? Are you the one? Romance, right? The romantic quest for the one. The one who will complete our longing hearts. But not just in romance. We ask, are you the one of our politicians? Seeking deliverers. 
We, we, we seek the, the one move to a new town to make us happy. The one career to fulfill us. The one friend to make us feel like we belong. We're always seeking messiahs. Asking, are you the one? Because you've got to live for something. You do. You've got to have purpose and meaning. You've, you've got to seek some kind of fulfillment and peace because you are indeed meant to have such things. And so we're all on this quest, always asking, are you the one? And there's only one who can say yes, only one who can say I am and be telling us the truth. There's one that we need to ask this question to and hear his response in faith. Later in this chapter, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me when you're heavy laden. He tells us about his own character, that he's gentle and that he doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick. He's patient with us doubters, not condemning. He hears you when you cry for help. And you need to remember the gospel, which is that he has completely paid for your sin. All of it, including any sin that's brought to the surface and exposed by your difficult circumstances and your dashed expectations. He's paid for that too. He may not always answer as fast or, or as we'd like or even as a way that we'd like. But his grace is always sufficient for us who trust him. And we, when we persevere in hope, his reward will be greater than we can imagine. So let's see how Jesus helps John persevere in hope. So it's important for us to see how, how Jesus responds to John and to John's question. Because when Jesus receives this question, he could have just responded with a simple, yes. Yes, I'm the one. Or, or he could have pulled a Jesus move and said, I am, right? But instead, he says this. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I love this because he does two things simultaneously with this response. First, he reaffirms what John knows. He's referencing prophecies that John was very familiar with. He's not just quoting one prophecy here, but this is a collection of prophecies from Isaiah. Isaiah 26, Isaiah 29, 35, 53, 61. It's like a guided reflection through the prophecies of Isaiah. And the last two weeks, we've shown how much John the Baptist drew from Isaiah, right? And so Jesus is reminding him of these prophecies that he's always trusted in and hoped in. And he's, but at the same time, he's pointing him to the evidence, to his own actions and his works. He's saying, this may not have been exactly what you were expecting, John, but this is exactly what God was expecting. He's leading John into rediscovery. He's giving him additional affirmation and he's guiding him back into trust. He's helping him to remember in the dark what he has known so clearly in the light. And there's a powerful picture of this in the book, The Silver Chair, which is one of the Narnia books. And the book is, in the book, there's this scene 
that I love where the, the two kids from our world, Jill and Eustace, they're with their friend Puddleglum, who's like the best character ever, and he's like a creature that's a mix between a dwarf and a frog, and he's got a, a personality similar to Eeyore. And, and then with them is a prince, really, in that they've just rescued. And they're all in this underground place called Underland. Dark, underground, ruled by an evil witch. And the witch catches them and begins to do what evil witches do and cast a spell over them, right? And so she throws green powder in this fire, which produces this sweet and drowsy smell. And she begins to strum on an instrument. And the combination of the incense and the strumming made it hard to think. And the longer it went on, the less you noticed it. And the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and into your blood. And then she starts to confidently and gently question them on what they know to be true. And she starts denying even the existence of the land above Underland. And they start to argue with her, and and she laughs away their memories as childish and naive make-believe or dreams. And they start to gradually agree with her. But Puddleglum, he fights against the enchantment. He says, I've seen the sky full of stars and I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea in the morning and singing behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. And with that clear and strong memory of the sun, the others start to be brought back. But then the witch counters and she says, what exactly is the sun? And they start to have difficulty explaining it so they compare it to a lamp, but bigger And she says, well, don't you see what you've done? You've just seen a lamp. So you imagined a bigger and better lamp. And then Jill, she starts to struggle against the spell. And she goes, but there's Aslan. And then again, the witch says, well, they've seen cats. And they've just imagined a bigger and better cat. And she condescendingly says that such make-believe would suit them better if they were younger. And they should get some sleep and begin a wiser life tomorrow. And they almost succumb to the enchantment. But then, Puddleglum summons all of his strength and his courage, and he stamps his big froggy foot straight into that green fire, which hurt terribly and burned him, but it, that the pain cleared his mind from the spell. And it also began to weaken the magic on the others. And so then he says with this newfound clarity, there's one more thing to be said. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world that licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't an Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for your supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're going to leave your court at once and set out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. I love Puddleglum so much. He's not really agreeing with the witch that... that 
that it's all nonsense, and then he's still clinging to Aslan anyway. What he's doing is he's using common sense to say that if we could so easily make up something that's so much more beautiful and important than what you call the real world, and that fits our deepest needs and longings, then this world cannot be all that there is. Puddleglum shows us how to break the spell of worldliness, weaved in the darkness of doubt. He's showing us how to remember in the dark what we have known in the light, right? He's lived, Puddleglum has lived in Narnia and the land above. It's not a blind leap. It's remembrance and a firmly grounded hope and a commitment to what he has known as, as true and good and beautiful. And this is an example for us. This is what Jesus is directing John to do. Remember in this darkness what you have known in the light. Remember in the fog of the valley which you have so, which, what you have seen so clearly in the mountaintop. Jesus is saying, look to God's word and look to me and what I have done. And this is where he points us as well. Trust in God's word. Plant yourself in it. Listen to him. Let him lead you. Trust in his promises and look to Jesus. Look to his character as expressed in his actions. He's a healer, a liberator, a lover of the weak. He's telling John, lepers are cleansed. Dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is saying to John, you're in this situation that you're in right now, John. Because of the selfishness and the sin of a worldly ruler. You're a casualty of the typical way that humans exercise power and authority. So look at me and my kingdom. See how different it is. It's not going to fit all of your categories of power and liberation that the world has put into your head. But you of all people should know how broken this world is. It needs something different. It needs me. It needs my kingdom that cares for the weak and regards the forgotten and restores and unites and loves. Of course, Jesus often acts in ways that are different than what we'd like or expect, but we've got to remember that we need him to be different because if he were the same, it would just be more of the same and more of the same is just more brokenness and hopelessness, but he is always working even when our vision, And when our vision is clearest, we can see him at work. But when it's cloudy, we've got to remember. Jesus doesn't shame John for his doubts. He has compassion and he helps John. But he also doesn't just give in to John's doubts, right? I mean, he doesn't condemn John, but he does challenge him, which is something that we need to grow in. We don't know how to do this, strike this balance. We think it's either complete affirmation or complete condemnation. We either shame people or celebrate them. We need to learn from Jesus how to have compassion and sympathy for people, to meet them in times of struggle and doubt with, and sin with, with love and welcome, but also speak truth in gentleness and, and prayer to receive people who are off track or who are limping and to hold their arm and walk with them in the direction of Jesus. Not just saying to the limping, walk it off, Gimpy. And not saying to those who are off track, you go, girl, keep going on that crooked path. 
No, there's a way of love that can encourage toward truth without being judgmental and looking down on others. And that's what Jesus does here. When he sends back that message to John, we see him add at the end, what does he say? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's acknowledging that doubt is not the best place to be. Yes, it's natural in this age, even the greatest, the strongest saints like John the Baptist can experience oppression and affliction and struggle with doubt. None of us are completely spared sorrow and affliction. And many of us will have seasons of feeling like we've been abandoned. So we must have sympathy like Jesus does. But sympathy is not the same as saying it's fine and good to stay in that place. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed means happy, flourishing, thriving, fulfilled. In other words, it's the better path to not be offended by Jesus, meaning it's, it's better to be in a place of settled trust. Jesus is patient, but he wants us to get to that better place. And he will help us there. And I just think that this is a very modern-sounding thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Because people are always getting offended today. People seem to live in a perpetual state of it, like they seek it out. And offense is... It's essentially this disagreement with, the, with a, a perception of some kind of slight or insult. But sometimes it's really secret agreement with the perception of a slight. You know what's being said is at least a little true, but you don't like that it's being said. You want to ignore it. And Jesus knows that people will be offended by him. He knows that because he knows the condition of our hearts. Amen. He knows that we want things to be about us, and he says, no, it's about him. He knows that we want to think of ourselves as mostly good. And he says, you're mostly bad. He knows that we want to think of ourselves as competent and capable. But he says, no, you're incompetent to run your own life. He knows that we desire complete consolation in this life. And he says, you're going to have to die first. He knows our ideas of fairness. And he says, my grace doesn't fit in those categories. He knows he's offensive because our hearts are so skewed and because our minds are so small. But Jesus is also saying, I'm not trying to offend you. I don't want you to be offended. I'm not insulting you any more than a doctor is who tells you you're sick. I'm telling you the truth because I love you. I'm telling you the truth. And if you're offended, it's because you're not really listening rightly. You're thinking too much of your own dignity. And you need to get out of yourself. But he says, if you can get out of yourself, beyond your puny perspective, and open yourself up to me and my truth and grace, let my love support you and strengthen you. Submit yourself to me, and you will be blessed. Blessed beyond measure when you live in that place of settled trust. That is the life of blessedness and joy. In Philippians 4, he tells us that it's the path to peace that surpasses understanding. And then we're told, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's saying redirect your thoughts to the good and the true and the beautiful. Put into practice what you have learned from me. In other words, take action. Fight back. Doubt your doubts. Don't let the darkness carry the day. It is weak and Jesus is strong. And Jesus offers himself as for consideration in this regard. The author of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. If you're growing weary and faint-hearted, consider him. He says, if you're struggling in your circumstances and suffering, remember that I did too. I know what it's like. I faced great suffering and I did it for you. I'm with you in this. And I love you. If you're facing dashed expectations and hopes, things aren't going as you imagined, let go. Let go of what could be and see him in what is. He is here with you. His grace is sufficient for you. If you doubt yourself, wondering if you've messed up or if you've missed something, look to Jesus instead. He's the founder and perfecter of your faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to him, not yourself. He will set you right. He will bring you peace. His life and his love, his character and his kingdom will settle your stirring heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for hearing us, being patient with us. We offer you even our questions and laments and doubts and cries, knowing that you can even use those things for your purposes. We ask that you prepare us for such times of doubt, darkness, and grant us the grace of perspective and patience, and even peace. Turn our hearts toward your Son, whose powerful love is a fortress of stability. We pray in his name. Amen.